And I've had writers tell me to my face, outliners, you can't pants a series. Really? <laughs> Welcome to Creative Insanity. Creative Insanity. How you doing? Hey, my name's Servant. I'm a rap artist and producer from Canada. And today my guest is J.H. Moncrief. She is a dark fiction writer who has over 10 books published, multiple short stories, and is most recently a featured expert on Cruise Ship Killers, a new true crime series airing in the UK. We launched the conversation by talking about the big things she did to catapult her career into genre fiction and how having unchangeable pillars in a creative work can breed ingenuity. Then we dive in. She reads us a brand new original story, a tantalizing piece written specifically for this podcast. We talk about her tendency to write about characters from other cultures and how teaching writing to international students has not only influenced her creative mind, but her heart. We get into her process as a pantser, the muses, and we extract some important lessons from her story for aspiring writers to absorb. I'm really pleased with this podcast. There's so much value in it. She's such a great guest. And this is only part one. Part two is coming next week. Let's get into the conversation. J.H. Moncrief. Is that Hello. a good, good pronunciation? Um, if you think more Scottish. If you can roll your eyes like a Scotsman, then you got it. Mon- Moncrief. Moncrief. Yes. yes. Aye, that's not bad. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled that you're on, in part because I also got you to write even more than you normally write by writing a short story just for this podcast. And so I'm thrilled about that. It's continuing a series that I haven't officially named yet of story time with, I don't know what to call it, but basically it's where I have authors such as yourself, short story authors or novelists or both in between and get them to write a prompt. I see your cat on the screen. That's awesome. (laughs) It was, yes. I get them to write a story um, to the same prompt that I write a story and then we discuss it and see what happens and talk about our process and go from there. But I, I know we're going to have tons and tons to talk about. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Give me a brief synopsis of like your career as a writer. How'd you get here? Well, I did stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to be more articulate this time. Uh, well, my name is Jay Schwankrief, as you uh, figured out. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And how did I start? Um, I've been writing since I could breathe pretty much since I was first able to grip a writing utensil. I've been writing something. Um, but I guess my big break was in 2015. Um, I've been a journalist for years. I was tired of uh, not really focusing on writing like I wanted to. And this contest for Sam Heen Publishing came up where they wanted novellas that dealt with childhood fears. Mm. I thought I could do that. So I did. And I won. And the prize was this publishing contract with them. And that just kind of kick-started everything else. So now I have, I actually counted this yesterday <laughs> as I get confused. I've written 15 novels and I have 11 published right now. Dang. So, yeah, I I felt really, it's funny, but I felt kind of uh, ashamed uh, once I finally got published because I'd wanted nothing else my whole life, but I became <laughs> this journalist. It kind of derailed me. 
And once I got published by Sam Hain, I was surrounded by all these amazing dark fiction authors. And they were all like, why do you only have one thing out? Why don't and they had like tons of books out. So I was pretty committed to catch up or at least attempt to catch up. I think I'll never you've caught finish. up. Oh, I think you've caught up. I mean, it's more than many people who aspire to write. It's more than many of them may ever write. You know, there's a there's a certain mold that you gotta break through to get to that point and you've done it. So Congratulations on that. Like, I, I admire that. You've been hard working for a very long time. Thank you. And it's still not the only thing I'm doing. So that's, that's always the balance, right? Now I'm teaching writing and marketing as well as writing. So it's always a constant tug of war between doing something outside of myself that I get external gratification and the war, rewarding interactions from versus sitting alone in a room and writing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to grab something, actually. I might edit me running to it, but I have your book because I've read one of your things, and I'm back with the book. This is the childhood fears that you were talking about. I'm just going to quickly show the camera on my end. This I purchased around uh, at a writer's conference where I had met you, actually, and I read it. I read it. Um, I was in Vancouver visiting. I was actually filming a couple of music videos there as well at the same time. And I read this in the week that I was there, which for me is really fast. So I, I remember really loving it. It's very spooky. It had that really, um, what uh, I want yeah, I want to talk about that. But what, if this is your first piece of fiction that was published, what was special about it? Why the dark fiction? You know what it was that was special about it? I wrote to market. Someone asked for something and I said, I can do that. And I gave them what they asked for. And hmm. I've told this to so many writers. They're really, they want to be traditionally published or they want to sell better and they're struggling. Everyone thinks it's a cop out to write to market, but it's not if you like writing to market, like if you actually like the thing they're asking you to do, like yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't like they asked me to do something totally out of my comfort zone. I thought childhood fears. Yeah, that sounds cool. I can do night you know, I could do that. I could come up with an idea. I could do like a Stephen King homage, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what I did. Uh, that was a big deal for me. Now, if they'd been asking for a novella about hot romance on a vacation island, maybe it wouldn't have been for me. Yeah. But it's a lot easier to write for someone who's looking for something already than it is to write the book of your dreams and then try to find someone who's going to want it. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons indie publishing has exploded because that's, it's not impossible to do, but it's a lot harder than just asking around and saying, okay, do you want this? That's how I got my, my third big contract too with Sever Press is I wrote the top selling dark fiction publishers at that time. And I asked them all what they were looking for out of, out of, those ones I contacted, one gave me a usable answer, and he said, we want sea monsters. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, I can do that. And I wrote them a sea monster story, which I never would have done otherwise. But that's how I broke in the door after all these years hmm. of writing these books I thought were amazing, but not finding... I'd find the right agent, but then she couldn't find the right publisher. Or I'd, yeah. You know, I just couldn't get all of those right time, right place, right person in a row. Yeah. So, so you thought, I went the 
<laughs> well, I don't think it's any any of it's easy. It's all difficult. But you went right to the the mouth of the dragon. You were like, "So what do you want?" And then you delivered. And they probably gave you a time frame or something, or they just said, "This is what's hot right now." And you said, "I'll get her done in like how long would it take you?" I think that one took me about six months. The the sea monsters because at that time I was still working in marketing as well. Hmm. But with Severed, it, they're, they're so interesting because they also really, really, really know their audience well. So <laughs> there's a constant cat parade. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. So, You're allowed to have uh, cats. So they really know their audience well. And I've had other authors that are published with them come to me and say, why is your book doing better than mine? Hmm. And I'll take a look at what they wrote. And it's usually... They wrote something that was a little different than what Severed normally publishes, but it, it fit enough for them to say yes, or they already had a book with a different publisher that went under and they asked Sam Hain to take, or Sam Hain, sorry, mm-hmm. they asked Severed to take it. And yeah. Severed said yes. But the people that do the best with Severed are the ones that say what you want because they know their audience. Yeah. They know it so well. When I pitched Return to Diatla Paps with them, I knew I wanted to do a story about a group of explorers going back to Diatla Paps. Mm-hmm. I knew that. And I said, and I, you know, when I pitched it, I said, well, there's a bunch of different theories about what happened there. And the publisher said, well, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, what do you want me to think? <laughs> and Hopefully this isn't a spoiler for anyone, but he said, Yetis, give me Yetis. Yetis do well for us. So I'm like, okay, Yetis it is. And that (laughs) book has done really, really well. But it's because if I went the way I'd go, which is government conspiracy and, you know, a human, a human angle, a human relationship for a human reason, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have done as well. Yeah. So you, yeah, it's, I could see how someone, could be like, oh, but you're changing the art to mold an audience. But, you know, the audience is what the art is for, too. So if you're at, if this is how it works and you've approached publishers and they know what their audience wants, you're creative enough to give them that. That, to me, is a whole level, whole different level of creative. Like, I learned a lot about having pillars uh, to have pillars in the story, like it's got to be about yetis, for instance, that sounds like a limiting factor, like, oh, this is going to like rob your creativity. But in fact, it actually makes you more inventive. It makes you more creative in many ways to have a prompt, for instance, makes you more creative because now you have this like there's a stick in the mud right here and you got to find a way to dance around it that is interesting, unique, um, has a different angle than somebody else would bring to it like really layer on, I've totally mixed this metaphor. Now it's a cake. Now just layer this, this stick cake. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like I've learned that pillars are important. So I'm happy that you shared that. I think that's really cool. Not a lot of people would think that. Well, and I, I did, to be fair, I did have more challenges writing those books than I have other books because I had to make them both fit a narrative that I wanted to tell. It still had to be a story that excited me. It still had to be something I wanted to write about. And I ordinarily wouldn't write about creatures, Mm. even though I have no problem with creatures. Creatures are awesome. But with Monsters in Our Wake, the sea monster story, I immediately knew, oh, 
here's where I get my message out about how I feel about, you know, the certain industries in the world ruining mm-hmm. our environment and that, that this is a perfect opportunity for me to, you know, explore some of that. But when it actually turned to the heavy lifting of research and figuring out how one of those ships works and <laughs> would they have this many people on deck and would this thing that the person trips over be on the deck and all that, I hated that part. <laughs> but I will say like some of the earliest books that I've ever written, I've now sold for pretty lucrative contracts because I did this first. Boom. So sort of yeah it opened the door for me so I was getting stuff out there then I got an agent and my agent has started to sell those books that I couldn't find the right time right place right person for so she started to sell those now so it all it all comes full circle it's just people have a different way of breaking into the industry so let's segue let's segue to the story that we're here for that we're going to share so the prompt Mm -hmm. that we had is rage and freedom. That was the prompt. How do we come to that prompt? I have a little plastic bag full of words that uh, a long ago editor made for me for this reason, where you could just, the idea was I was supposed to pull out a word a week, I think, and write a story. Well, that didn't last too long. (laughs) So I still have this bag of words sitting there. And yeah, that's what, when everything was lame on the internet, we decided to try it. that's what we came up with. Yeah, you drew a couple, Rage and Freedom. And I thought it was a, honestly, it sounded a bit broad at first, but you know what? I Stories came to us and we're going to dive into them and then we're going to talk about them, our process and uh, similarities and differences. And since I'm the host, I get to decide who goes first and it's not me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so um, how do you feel about that? You ready to read your story? I hope so. <laughs> All right. Do you have a title for it? Yes, it's The Promise. The Promise. Okay. The Promise. Everything I sell has a story. Karen cleared her throat, knowing it would take the proprietor's attention away from the young couple. They seemed nice enough. Look at how they were dressed. They probably didn't even have jobs. And time was money, at least hers was. Even this... She gestured to the object that caught her eye. It was perfect, simple, elegant. The ideal gift to herself after another month of record-breaking sales. She could imagine wearing it, picture the looks of envy on her underlings' faces. The shop owner forced a smile, looking pained. Not a very nice story to that one, I'm afraid. Perhaps you'd be interested in something else? If you'll just give me a minute... Before the woman could turn back to the couple, Karen moved to block the shop owner's view. You have to be assertive in this world, especially in business. Everyone knew that. I'm intrigued. What's the story? The younger man smiled. It's okay. You can help her first. She seems in a hurry. Thank you. Karen nodded at him, not quite sure if he was patronizing her or not, but ultimately deciding she didn't care. So... What is the story? The challenge in her voice was intentional. She may have been intrigued, but she wasn't an idiot. She could see this old woman was just trying to make a buck. Everything I sell has a story. Yeah, right. Anything to unload some overpriced antiques. The owner glanced at the couple, which annoyed her. I'm the one with the money here. 
but they'd already moved on. The woman tugging on her fiance's sleeve, leading him away from the counter. Smart move, honey. Try to find the ones that are on sale. The shop owner sighed as she turned back to Karen. What a performance. It's not a happy story, like I said. I doubt you'll be interested in that piece once I tell you. Try me. Karen had to admit the woman's sales tactic was working. Maybe she could use a version of it herself. Hmm, every house has a story. Would her clients fall for it? Of course, the real trick would be getting them to care about a story other than their own. The woman bit her lips, stalling. It was a convincing gesture, but she didn't understand the urgency of the situation. She'd hooked Karen, but she hadn't reeled her in. If this went on for too much longer, Karen would take her bonus money elsewhere. She leaned closer, affecting a conspiratorial tone. Do you mind if I give you a suggestion? The shop owner's eyes widened. No, not at all. I don't mean to brag, but I'm good at business. Very good. That's why I'm here. She smiled, unable to hide her delight. I'm using my latest bonus to treat myself. <clears throat> I see. The woman made an odd sound, like a cough had gotten tangled in her throat. Karen hoped whatever she had wasn't contagious. So here's my free advice from one entrepreneur to another. You really don't want to talk your customers out of buying things, you know, especially in this market. It's not that. The woman checked over her shoulder, but no one was anywhere near them, which made her reluctance even stranger. Clearly, she could use every customer she could get. They're such a nice couple, so young and in love. I didn't want them to hear this. It would ruin their day. Karen laughed. Oh, come on. You're laying <laughs> on a little thick, aren't you? Not at all. There's a reason why these pearls don't sell. Everyone's afraid of the curse. Curse? Now she really was intrigued. Curses fascinated her. She didn't truly believe in that nonsense, but the stories were just so interesting. The Black Pearl, James Dean's car, King Tut's tomb. Yes, curse. The woman stared hard at Karen. Are you sure you want to hear about it? Maybe the pearls haven't sold because you're fucking creepy about them. Still, she'd never been one to back away from a challenge. Yes, please. The woman pushed her gray, frizzy hair away from her face, looking for all the world like she'd wish Karen would have said no. What on earth was wrong with her? She'd never met anyone so reluctant to close a deal. They belonged to a young woman. The shop owner softened her voice to a near whisper. A young woman of color. Is that why you thought I wouldn't want them? Karen felt her throat tightening, her chest growing warm. I'm not a racist. Oh, oh no, no, of course not. I didn't think that for a minute. It's only that plays a part in the story. All right, go on then, she said, feeling somewhat mollified. So she was absolutely stunning. So beautiful and a lovely person too, I'm told. So many men were in love with her and she could have had her pick. But sadly, she did not choose wisely. Karen snorted. A common story, what woman does? been happily married for over 25 years well good for you for surviving that long but that's hardly typical in my experience men are nothing but a disappointment 
why else would I be here picking out my own gift? Men are hopeless when it comes to knowing what women want. The shop owner made that strangled cough sound again, and Karen backed up a few steps. Anyway, the man who seduced her was older, charming, and highly successful in business. Karen nodded. Sounds like a good choice to me. He was also married and white. She rolled her eyes. I figured that out when you said he was successful in business. The older woman made a strange face. Are you all right? If she caught this woman's illness, she'd sue. People shouldn't come to work when they weren't feeling well. It should be against the law. It was the 1950s. Relationships between women of color and white men were still frowned upon. Yes, yes, Karen flapped her hand as if swatting a mosquito. She hadn't come here for a history lesson or to be lectured. Her friends did their best to warn her, told her the man would never leave his wife, especially for a poor black girl from Alabama, but she was in love. Said every woman who's about to make a big mistake. So let me guess, she didn't leave him. <laughs> no, she didn't. He brought thee her these pearls as a symbol of his loyalty, a promise that one day they would be together out in the open. In the 1950s? Karen raised an eyebrow, a skeptical look she perfected. It came in handy when her colleagues quoted her a ridiculous price. Best of luck with that. The necklace was found on the woman's nude body, wrapped tightly around her neck, as if she'd been strangled with it. She had also been stabbed, the shop owner lowered her voice again, 14 times. The image of the blood-soaked pearls embedded in another woman's neck didn't deter Karen. She'd always had a bit of a thing for the macabre. And the curse? Any woman who owns them is bound to be unlucky in love. Karen laughed again, perhaps too loudly for the woman flinched. That's it? I've had that curse since the day I was born. There's one more thing. I've sold these pearls five times, and each time they've come back to me. Karen scowled. Now this was one curse that did bother her. The last thing she wanted was another woman's castoffs. How come? The women I sold them to were found dead in their beds, wearing this necklace. Asphyxia was the official cause of death, but no one has been able to figure out how the women died. There wasn't a mark on them. But how did you end up with the necklace? Seems to me it should have gone to their estate. My business card was found in each of the women's rooms with a note directing whoever finds it to return the pearls to me. As far as I'm aware, no one has ever objected. The idea of wearing a necklace that was found on a loved one's corpse doesn't sit well with people. And the police have never suspected you? The woman's mouth gaped. Why would they? I had no reason to harm these women. They were my customers. Well, your business card has been found at five crime scenes. You have to admit, it, it looks suspicious. Their deaths were never considered murder. All the medical examiner could determine was that each woman lost her ability to breathe. Karen studied the pearls. She could tell they were of the highest quality, worth considerably more than the old woman would probably ask. A lot of people thought pearls were white, but that wasn't true. At least, the best ones weren't. The very best pearls were cream, 
and these ones had that lovely ivory glow. Who killed her? The first woman, I mean. Her murder was never brought to justice, sadly. No one knows to this day. It was her lover, I assume. Perhaps she got pregnant. I don't think he was responsible. I've heard that he died a broken man, never the same after she was killed. I'm sure he wasn't. Should have kept it in his damn pants. As the woman moved to put the pearls back in her display case, Karen felt the urge to grab her, but she had to remain calm. It wouldn't do to appear overeager. What are you doing? You don't still want to buy them. Of course I do. No little fairy story is going to scare me off. How much? The woman quoted her an outrageous price and Karen laughed. She was laughing on the inside too, as she'd suspected the shop owner had asked too little. So these pearls are not only going to kill me, but rob me blind as well. Stiffening, the shop owner glared at her. That is an extremely fair price for such high quality pearls. Despite the reputation, I can't let them go for less than they're worth. We'll see about that. Karen thrived on negotiation and by the time she was finished, she had the pearls for 30% less and the older woman looked defeated. I'll need an independent appraisal, of course. Whatever you like. A certificate of appraisal is included, but I can't stop you from wasting your own money hung in the air, unspoken. Karen decided she didn't like this woman. <laughs> she didn't like her tone, her attitude, the expressions of disgust and shock upon her irritating face. She wouldn't do business here again. What was the woman's name? Karen asked, taking the small paper bag from the woman's fingertips. Who? The original owner, the one who was murdered. What was her name? I'm afraid I don't know. The shop owner pushed her frizzy hair of her eyes and slumped behind the counter, looking exhausted. <laughs> That's what I thought. Karen left the store feeling triumphant. Bullshit story. Who makes up a story to scare our potential buyers? And if it had been real, the murdered woman would have had a name. It was definitely time for that old bat to retire. Later that evening, Karen sat in front of her dressing table with a dry martini and a cigarette. She opened the velvet case and lifted the pearls, pausing to rub one against her teeth. It felt gritty, as she'd known it would. There would be no need for an additional appraisal. She'd only want to insult the old woman who had wasted so much of her time. The pearls gleamed against her collarbone. For a moment, she wondered how they'd look against darker skin. But that was ridiculous. It had been a story, only a story. Not a word of it was true. These had probably been owned by some inbred debutante who had gotten herself knocked up in the back of daddy's car, needed some bucks to have it taken care of. Even so, as she finished her martini and prepared for bed, she couldn't help thinking of the young woman. Karen found herself remembering her own heartaches, pain she'd long buried. Only idiots believe the promises of married men, she thought. After all, she should know. It was a bit silly to wear such expensive jewelry to bed, but it was her way of thumbing her nose at the old woman, letting her see that Karen McCardle did not believe her fear-mongering curse crap. Maybe one day she'd go back to that store just to let the owner know she'd worn the pearls to bed every night and look, still breathing. She wasn't alone. 
Her eyes snapped open. She knew there was someone there, though the intruder tried their best to be quiet. The smell of expensive perfume, rich and redolent of orchids, tickled her nose and made her want to sneeze, but she didn't dare. I've heard all about you. Karen cringed. She'd known someone was there, but hearing a voice besides her own in the room was a shock. She wanted to demand the intruder explain her presence, but her lips felt glued together. She couldn't speak. I know you've been messing with my husband. What? She hadn't been messing with anyone for years, married or otherwise. Great. First time someone breaks in and they have to be deranged. The woman's breath was hot against her cheek, stale tobacco and gin. Karen struggled to pull away, but she couldn't move, couldn't so much as wiggle. Uppity little negress, the voice growled into her ear. Don't know your place. That's your problem. Well, you're sure going to know it now. The pearls tightened around Karen's neck, forcing the air from her throat. She fought to get her nails underneath them to break the other woman's grip, but the necklace was buried too deep in her flesh. Should have turned you into the sheriff. He would have known exactly what to do with an uppity little negress like you. She twisted the pearls even more and stars burst in front of Karen's eyes. Why didn't the strand break? It shouldn't have been able to take this much abuse. But I like to do my own dirty work. Light from a passing car flooded the room. Her attacker was blonde, wearing a fur coat. The hand that wasn't clutching the pearls was raised. The metal blade winked at Karen, promising an unpleasant end. I'm not her, she tried to scream as the knife pierced her skin. Teach you to mess with other women's husbands. Her attacker panted with each thrust of the blade. Say her name. But I'm not her. Say her name. Finally, Karen found her voice. My name is Violet. The necklace fell limp around her throat. The officer watched her polish the pearls with the fine cloth. Now, I don't mean to tell you your business, Mrs. Markham, and it's Mrs. I've been married for over 25 years. She caught a moment of pain flicker across his face, quick and then gone. Divorce then, hardly a surprise. Nearly everyone was these days. This is the sixth woman who's died wearing these pearls. Perhaps you should stop selling them. I'll take that under advisement, officer. He watched her for a moment longer and then got up from his seat and left, shaking his head. He knew she'd still sell them, and why not? There was no law against selling jewelry that belonged to a dead woman. What he didn't understand was why. It was the least she could do to atone for her mother, a twisted, narcissistic woman who turned her rage on the wrong person, who'd taken the life of an innocent girl instead of her backstabbing, cheating husband. Mrs. Markham dreamed of that young woman every night. Her name? was Violet. This time, the pearls had had the tiniest little flick of blood on them, but she'd taken care of that with her polishing cloth. As she replaced the necklace in the jewelry case, she was glad the officer was gone. It meant she didn't have to hide her smile. Oh, that was heavy. <laughs> Yay, did it. You did it. <laughs> Great job. Um, 
Wow. Um, first of all, I will say you made a Karen. <laughs> Karen, the stereotype Karen. Um, Karen from Facebook. Karen from Facebook, yes. And I think that's awesome. That's awesome that uh, as soon as she was in the story, I just knew that Karen's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't actually. I wasn't sure where it was going at the start of it. Um, it's really timely, you know, like the rage and freedom prompt, I imagine, got your blood boiling a little bit, hey? I didn't know what I was going to write about at first, because when we started talking about all this, it was before the riots erupted, mm-hmm. um, or the protests, rather, uh, before the protests erupted uh, this time around. Um, so I wasn't sure what I was going to write. And uh, then I was reading a book called The Demonologist about the work of parapsychologists Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were featured in the Conjuring movies. Um, and it talked about all the artifacts that they keep in their museum uh, that, you know, were supposedly possessed or cursed and nobody can ever have anything to do with them again. So the Warrens have kept them in this kind of like magical thing. Mm. And one of them was a pearl necklace that strangles anyone that wears it. And I just thought, that's a cool, that's a cool idea. I can do something with that. And then when all of the protests broke out, I was so upset and so sad and so angry. And I was able to actually channel all of the stuff I was feeling into the story and get rid of some of it. Like it was therapeutic for me to write Mm. this kind of story, even though it's controversial. (laughs) Yeah, I'm all controversial, I think. But uh, I went there trusting that it would be okay because I know what's in my heart. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely was therapeutic. But yeah, it wasn't until I read that piece about the pearl necklace that that prompt started working on me. Yeah, yeah I thought that as I, because I read this, we passed the stories basically a, ahead of time, a day or two ahead of time, so that we could read them, think a little bit about them. Whereas last time that I did this with Garrett, we just read them to each other and didn't have any time to precogitate anything. And what happened was good but a little bit of a bumbling afterwards where I was like trying to come up with the right thing to say. But I, I want to say like, it's, it was interesting because I kind of had the opposite. Well, like my story isn't timely as we'll get to it, but I had the thought in my head, you know, cause with everything going on, I was like, well, rage and freedom, boy, that sure fits in. Like it's cause when we had the prompt, yeah, none of this stuff had happened, but then it was happening as I was thinking about the story. And I had one idea that I was going to go with that I didn't go with that I could have maybe worked in a little bit of that stuff. But I think I just decided to run from it. I just thought I didn't I didn't want to write a story about it. I just wanted to be somewhere else, you know. But you didn't want to be somewhere else. You wanted to process it a bit. And I think that that's really, really fascinating. It's an interesting di- dichotomy that happened there. Like one of us wants to escape a bit and the other one wants to confront it a bit, but both are through fiction, you know? Yeah. So that's cool. So it, did you feel like you had a choice about it or did you sit and think, or was it just like, I have to do this? I know almost everything I write, I'm taking a chance hmm. because I do tend to write about other cultures, other people, things are controversial. I write a lot about racism, uh, but in my case, 
that some of your, probably a lot of your watchers may not know that I also teach international students. When I say teach writing and marketing, it's primarily international students I'm working with. So I have a class full of people of color and brown people, black people, Mm -hmm. uh, people from different religions, different cultures, all new Canadians, pretty much. I think I have five domestic students. So we call domestic students. That's what we call people born here. Everyone else is a new Canadian. And every single day without fail, I will hear about something terrible that's happened to one of them. Like there'll be some horrible story They'll come to me and say, how do I get Canadian accent? Because someone told them they needed to have a Canadian accent and Hmm. just horrible stuff. So uh, when the protests started happening, my students were in raw pain. Like you could just see it like they were just really, really struggling. And that's not something you can turn your back on. Like I just I didn't necessarily have to write about it, but I was. I was going through that with them every day Mm -hmm. and it just, yeah, there's so much negative energy. I just wanted to get out. And in this case, writing was very therapeutic. Mm. I'm happy to have killed Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Karen was an asshole. (laughs) Karen, like, I mean, I, I don't think she deserved to die. Certainly not like that. Right. Obviously, but I, it was a terror. It was interesting as she has that kind of, I'm not a racist. And the way that it came out, like that was actually maybe the only moment of sympathy that I had for her was when she had that line, I'm not a racist, because the way that it came up, like it was sort of an honest mistake in that the woman leaned in and said, like, it was a woman of color. And so the implication that Karen had in her mind was a fair one. She fairly implicated that the woman was saying you're probably not going to like this because this is a black woman who had this. And so she, for her to be like, I'm not racist. Like to me, that was like a pretty guttural response that I sympathized with. But then there was other things about her character that seeped out. And you're like, you know what? She's got some real subtle racism going on or not even so subtle where, um, oh yeah. Thinking about when it was a affluent businessman or something like that. And she was like, well, of course it's a white guy. She was thinking, right? Like she sort of chuckled about that. Like, of course, it's going to be that. And there was one other that was stark. You probably know it. Well, I never said this. I never spelled it out. So it's probably not this. But in the beginning, that young couple, I was picturing them as a couple from India. Um, And she was very like, oh, they probably don't have jobs. Look at how they're dressed. Yeah, she Uh, was making some sweeping judgments about them. And I wasn't sure why she just seemed kind of like a mean person but that that yeah. could also be ageism right like look at all the shots we hear taken at millennials like that's oh, okay yeah. right like there's a very there's a very one-sided ageism right now where it's totally okay to trash millennials that's fine but you know you're not allowed to do that to anyone else so yeah i was playing on that a bit too mm. um yeah, well, and it was it was very fitting too in the story because they were a couple in love, and so it 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 uh it carried it segued it very nicely. It's like a bit of an interesting moment. She's kind of being an asshole, but I guess what's interesting about this story to me is that on the whole, I didn't find her that sympathetic. I kind of I wasn't rooting for her death. I I'm not that kind of person, but I was I was excited a bit when I saw that things were happening that were kind of scary for her. Um, 
though were it a real situation, I I don't think I would feel that way as I know it's fiction. But still, it's sort of like, is was that a conscious effort? Did you try to craft a character? Were you aware that this character is not going to be too sympathetic, but what is sympathetic is the opposite perspective character, like the 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 shop owner. She's the sympathetic one, right? Was that a conscious decision, or is it just kind of how they, the way they danced? The shop owner Violet. Violet to me is the most sympathetic, even though we don't get to see her. But we can imagine we're getting to see what happened to her, what really happened to her, right? Through what happened to Karen. Um, to me, I, it's very hard for me to write one-dimensional characters. It's very, very difficult. Uh, and sometimes people love that. Sometimes people hate it. And I noticed even in this story, she was starting, Karen thinks about her own heartaches. Karen starts, yeah. <laughs> to, so it starts to go in things that uh, like it's going to build sympathy for her. She's going to, we're going to start getting into why she is the way she is. And I went, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to conflict people too much with this story about what, if they were happy with the ending or not. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to have fun with this one where I just made a person like her and had something take revenge. Yeah. It was like I, a vengeance story. It was kind of like yeah. a misplaced. I, I say the word misplaced. Cause I think like in a moral sense of, you know, killing somebody, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's sort of, but it was like this kind of idea of justice, right? It's like this terrible thing happened to Violet and, she, in this case, she smiled about it, which to me is like, she was very intentional. So it was like dark and interesting. And I, what I caught on the read through, by the way, that I didn't, when I, when I read it, when you were reading it out loud, was the fact that the shop owner coughed and had this weird, you even say the word, this strangled cough. And I'm like, that's foreshadowing, right? That's, it's a little sneak peek. I wasn't thinking of it that way. It was just a joke about COVID a little bit. Oh, like, really? <laughs> kind of like, yeah, like now it's a big thing that everyone's going to be afraid of, of yeah. us when we cough. But that was more of a, I was writing it as if it was a pre-COVID thing, but building in all of those little, you know, the people shouldn't be allowed to come to work when they're sick. Yeah, yeah. It was, that was timely as well. Yeah. No, I, some of the stuff I do, like foreshadowing and that, I don't know I'm doing it. I'm, I'm always interested when people tell me stuff that they've gotten out of my books because, yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. I guess that, yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting, we've talked a bit before about your process. You seem to have just this real under-the-sky-of-mystery approach where you're, like, writing a story and you don't seem to have too many, like, hard explanations. Is that fair of me to say? Yeah, it's, uh, it's all about coming up with like a very, very, very thin shell of an idea, like a what if scenario. What if this pearl necklace strangled people who wore it? Cool. Okay. <laughs> what if the words rage and freedom had to be tied into this number? <laughs> cool. Okay. Um, so I start with that. And then I just waiting for a character who comes up and starts talking to me. And Karen would not shut up. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. So, so then all I have to do is just tell their story, but I don't know if we have time for this, but there's a cool story around that. No, tell do me. We have, yeah. We've got time. Okay. You can always cut it if it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll consider it, but go on. 
So one of the one of the things I think that really illustrates how creepy but cool this is, is I was writing uh, one of my books, and at the near the end, one of the characters discovers he has this power. He he can protect you. He's it's but it's a supernatural thing. He's called a protector now. But at that time, he didn't know what this would manifest as, what it would look like. This book was set in Egypt. And what ended up happening is these silver bees came out of his mouth, the swarm of supernatural swarm of bees Hmm. that defeated the enemy. When my editor read that, he said, because this book also dealt with the ancient gods of Egypt as well, even though it's set in contemporary Egypt. When my editor read that, he said, did you, why'd you use bees? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> it's just like, that's what the character told me to do, right? My usual. Yeah. And he said, did you know bees represented the sun god Ra? Hmm. And I said, no, I had no idea. And he said, so basically what you're saying is Ra held Jackson defeat these things. And huh. I, huh, I guess so. So I did a little tweak. Right. And put that in at the end of the book. But yeah, it, it just stuff like that. It just like, it could be a coincidence. Yeah, and that's I've, so cre- creepy and cool. Like, yeah, I sometimes there's things that are happening on a either subconscious or out of conscious level when it comes to being a writer that when it comes out on the page, you miss things. But like sometimes they're so genius that you have no idea how you could have even have thought of that. And sometimes you didn't think of it. It was a connection made after the fact. So I think that's what's interesting. It really opens up this idea of the muses, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, it's a very old idea. And I'm not sure many people like literally believe that there are floating muse spirits or whatever that are like telling ideas. Maybe, maybe people do. But me, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure where I'm at with that. But there's like something that you're channeling at times that seems to like come from somewhere else. And I think as long as you're, you know, trying not to channel like Satan or something, you're probably good, <laughs> you know. But it's interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah, um, it's. It, I really, I have called it channeling before. That's what it feels like because my all my books. And I've been told, I've sat on panels with people. They love to do this to me at writing conferences. <laughs> they'll make me the freak of the panel. Oh, so yeah. they'll put me on with a bunch of other writers who outline, who believe in outlines. And I'm the only one there who's a pantser, right, right. by the seat of my pants, right? Mm. So they'll have me representing the pantsers. And I've had writers tell me to my face, outliners, you can't pants a series. Really? <laughs> that's you can't what you're pants doing. mysteries really because i do i pants everything i don't know any other way to write it like if you and i talked about my entire idea for a book i would have lost the interest lost in writing the interest, yeah but i couldn't do that anyways because i don't know my idea for a book until i start writing i'll have the like shell I've made stuff up for publishers because they're like, well, I need a bitter bitter synopsis to take to Nick. Can you get me a synopsis? And I'm like, you know, I don't write like that. (laughs) Make something up. Yeah, make something up. (laughs) But 
for me, no, I don't outline. I, mm. I don't. That's why it's so important for me not to take long breaks from something because I might lose whatever thread was dangling out there from uh, wherever. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. There is actually a very good talk. Um, I don't know if I'll have to put it in the intro. Gilbert, I want to say Gilbert Godfrey, but that's not it. Somebody Gilbert is in the name and she does a TED talk about oh, Elizabeth? Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah. Eat, pray, love? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I know. She, well, I thought it was her. She wrote a talk about the muses. Yeah, she did. That was her. And she talks about the muses and how it's such a great, even conceptually a good idea for writers because you realize the story isn't necessarily coming from you. So if it sucks, it means that you got like a crappy muse or somebody, right? Like it's not your fault. You just got to go out there and keep hunting and keep doing what you do. And there's so many interesting stories of, writers and their uh, relationship to the muse, whatever that is. There's one uh, Elizabeth God Godfrey, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in her talk about some poet or something like that who says that if she has this idea and she's out in the field, then she'll go running to go get her pen and her notebook. But if she misses it, she misses it. But sometimes she's fast enough she can catch just the tail end of the muse and then she'll write it out. But in those cases, it always comes out every word backwards because it's going wow. in the opposite direction. So That's so weird. Yeah, so I don't, you know, take it or leave it. I think of Flannery O'Connor, who's one of my favorite people of all time, though I never met her personally, of course. Um, and she had this kind of idea. She would write for three hours every day, basically every day. And she would tell herself that you train the muse. You sit down in the same spot, but in chair for the same length of time every day and you teach the muse where to show up and when to show up and eventually it'll just show up and you'll start writing and become much more uh, prolific. So yeah, it's interesting. And there is something about your process that does kind of like, I feel like those outliners a bit where I'm like, what the heck? I don't understand. Even though strictly speaking, I'm also a pantser. I also write by the seat of my pants. I don't know what I'm going to write when I sit down most of the time. And and when I do get an idea about it, I usually work with something else. I usually change my idea. So it's interesting. Um, before we move on to my story, I want to talk, let's see. I want to point out just a couple little things for, for novice writers that I noticed could really learn. Um, you made it shift in tense really, really well. And I have, to, I have it in front of me here. And this is the moment where Karen goes home and... She leaves the shop, and then we flash forward, and she's there. At, it's at nighttime. And she, later that evening, she's sitting in front of her dressing table. She's having a dry martini and a cigarette, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get to this triumphant kind of set of mindset she's in, where she says, maybe one day she'll go back to that store just to let the owner know she'd worn the pearls to bed every night. And look, still breathing. And it's this lovely little attitude. I like that about her, too. She kind of had this defiant attitude. And then all of a sudden, you have, she wasn't alone. What a simple sentence. Her eyes snapped open. Also, a very simple sentence. But when I read it, I felt a shift too. Writers who, like me, an earlier time, when you don't know how to shift tension, like, okay, now I want to make it spooky. Now I want to get her worried about what's going on. They try to write too much to make this transition into this long, lengthy process or too many hints or clues. And then when really you just got to stop and then start the new thing. 
and people ride with it. That's something that I've noticed. Would do you have any thoughts on that, or do you do it oh, consciously? I teach, I teach this stuff. So, two things with that. One thing is it's killing pace when you do that. It's killing the pace. Hmm. So you have a good story. It's going along at a fast clip, and then you stop for an info dump to like explain everything hmm. or describe the spaceship in epic detail or describe <laughs> the sword in epic detail, and like every piece of battle armor everyone in the battlefield is wearing you've lost them uh, i'm not saying you can't add some of that but with pace it's so important when you're starting to get to the climax of a story which i was you don't want anything extra in there you don't want anything that's going to bog people down or uh lose them like you definitely don't want people going <laughs> at that point of the story right yeah. that's your you know, you got to be with me now, people. Yeah, you made it yeah. this far. You made it through Karen taunting the old lady. <laughs> like, made it through. Like, you got to stay with me. So that's one thing. Another thing readers do, or readers do, another thing beginning writers do all the time is they talk down to their reader. They hmm. kind of, it's either they don't trust themselves. They don't think they're good enough writers yet. Or they think their readers are stupid. Hmm. That's how it comes across. So they would feel the need, like you were saying, to explain. Karen went to bed. Yeah. It was about 12 midnight and uh, something made her want to wake up. She fluttered her eyes. Then, you know, like yeah. they would have that the scene a bit more instead yeah. of just trusting people figure it out. Yeah. And they would give her too much internal dialogue. They'd be like, oh. Was there a sound like they, they'd spend too much time on that moment too? I know this. I say like they as if they're these other people, but it's me. It's just a younger <laughs> me, right? I'm no master writer or anything, but there's a lot that I've learned just by the sheer act of writing so much for so long. So when I'm talking about amateur writer, I just mean a younger me. And <laughs> well, and there's no, I mean, everyone's an amateur writer in the beginning, right? I mean, in some ways, I still. I'm an amateur writer. If you go ask me to write a screenplay right now or a mm. book of poetry, I mean, I'd be pretty darn amateur. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I've just spent an awful lot of time telling stories, short stories and novels. So this is the this is the medium that I'm comfortable with, but you mm -hmm. could definitely give me another writing, writing medium that I'm not comfortable with. Yeah, sure. and then you'd be kind of, you'd probably adapt pretty quickly because... If you're proficient in one form of art, um, relatively proficient, it's pretty, people tend to pick up other things. It's like virtuosos, people who are like great at musical instruments. There's just like a, this innate creative ability that once you've learned something and you've gotten really good at it, you can apply many of those rules into other areas. Like if you, like me, played piano for a long time, when I learned guitar, it was that evening that I was starting to write songs with it because it was like, oh, this sounds good with this one. This sounds like a chord. Okay, I have a chord. I need three more of those. And now I can, like the, the rules you've, you learn to reapply. So I feel like screenwriting, yeah, you'd, you'd struggle maybe for a bit, but you'd be, you'd be on your way in no time. Work um, with me here. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say too, one other moment I wanted to highlight was the haggling when Karen and the shop owner have this moment where they kind of haggle back and forth. And what the point of that is that I gathered, like it kind of just further illustrates how really 
without scruples this woman is. And she's like, oh, it's like ridiculous. Like she should have quoted higher, but I'm still going to haggle her down. Like it was just this really mean and meticulous set of mine. But you didn't feel the need to write out that haggle process. And there's a lot of dialogue in the story, but you knew that was boring. That was not necessary. So you just summed it up in like a sentence and you're like, they haggled and at the end, you know, she got it for 30% cheaper. Point across, story has been told, or that part of it. And that was another thing I, when I was reading, I was like, man, I, an older me, younger me would want to write that out without stopping myself. Um, write it out and then take it out. Yeah, exactly. Like the timing of the piece, like that you allude to police brutality in it because she says, she mentioned that, you know, the sheriff would know what to do with you, with this, with this woman, this terrible woman, um, has in mind and like, you know, the 1950s and all that kind of stuff and young woman in love. And really he's the bad guy. And, uh, it was, it was really, that part of it definitely made me sad and kind of made me contemplate things. I know like we don't have to, we, we probably shouldn't get into like the protests and some of the, the other things that have been surrounding it because that would be a whole other conversation. But I will just say, it really did kind of make give me some pause and make me think a little bit and feel something because poor Violet, you know, that's just poor Violet. Like that sucks. And uh, on how many, how many young women like her, you know, disappeared mm -hmm. or were murdered and their cases just weren't yeah. dug into more. Or, and no one would ever have thought a woman was capable of that back then. They would have looked for you're right. Now. You're right. I think that it, that was far more taboo. I mean, now uh, we all know that women kill more than men. I'm just kidding. I just <laughs> made that up. But but it's certainly more commonplace in thrillers and sci-fi and stuff. Like it's it's pretty gender equal, I think, in terms of who the killers are. But back then, yeah, I don't think you would have ever thought that could happen. And statistic, yeah. and I will okay, I will say to clarify, statistically, men kill more than women. Just saying. Yeah. Men, men, men are more often perpetrators of crime. They also have more testosterone and all sorts of things. But yeah, good story. Good story, JH. Thank, Thank you, you for reading is it. There, is there any critical feedback that you have? Critical feedback? Well, I'd like to think even positive feedback can be critical as long as you're pointing out yeah. specific things. So like people get the impression sometimes critical is a bad thing. Critical is really good. It just means like, to critically think about something means to heavily process it. And in terms of critical, this is me being super picky. This will me be real picky. But when I got to the end, um, I felt like for some reason the connection, so, so tell me, Mrs. Markham is Violet. Or is she not Violet? No. No, okay. You said something in our conversation that made me think she was Violet, but I was like, that doesn't make sense. She would have died. So that threw me through this whole confusion because when I got to the end, Mrs. Markham is the daughter of this killer. Yes. Effectively. And so she's an unrelated, she's older now because it was the 1950s when her mom was that age. So she's an older woman, probably an older white woman. And that, that was basically her connection. So she's kind of seeking out the justice of this un, kind of like the opposite of like the injustice that happened. And she's kind of like being a vigilante 
in a way. Like she has this kind of symbiotic relationship with the pearls, it seems. Like she knows what they're going to do. And even the, and what's kind of interesting too is the cop even knows what they're going to do, right? The new cop, like the, the more modern one. And he's like, ah, I can't stop her. You know, like he kind of seems a bit uncaring too. So that actually clarifies my thing. Because that, that was my impression and you just said something that threw me a bit. And so I was like, what did I, did I misread something? But you know what? We're good. I really don't have any critical feedback. There's no point. Could I pour through this and find a sentence I didn't like or something? I'm sure I could. But I don't, <laughs> I don't see that there's a point in that kind of nitpicking, you know? I don't, I don't find I enjoy getting that kind of nitpicking, so I don't like to give it either. Well, I think uh, that was have... my concern. What you brought up was I was wondering if people would get it. Because right. some of it, when you can't read it, like the people that are listening to this, they're only going to hear mm-hmm. me read it out loud. So the when she's being killed and it's like the say her name, say her name, that's a voice yelling in her head. Um, yeah, and yeah. Then, my name is Violet. So it's sort of like making all these racist backwards, um, living in a bubble, yeah. uh, women pay this ongoing debt because mm. of a murder that occurred in yeah. the 1950s. And you read it very well. And you're right, it is tricky sometimes when things are in italics, like it's a thought versus a dialogue. But you were, I think you did a very good job because you'd subtly, you get a little quieter, you'd kind of say like an offside thing versus actual dialogue. But you're right. Maybe then, maybe there could be a way to tighten up the ending somehow or just like make it, maybe make that point a little clearer and i it could be just my lack of critical reading too right because i've read things too that people get that i don't get so you got to take it with a grain of salt um how do you feel was that the only thing that you were kind of concerned about or was there anything else you feel you didn't pull off well or that you could have worked on or do you feel like it's Mm -hmm. just solid the only other thing that i'm a little concerned about is i spent so much time in the jewelry store, building up everything. And then the end is like this. Mm. So I was a little afraid people might feel like I rushed the ending or uh, mm. I cheated them. Like, why was there so much buildup in the jewelry store and now it's over? So that would be the only thing I would, that's one thing that sticks out. Use the same word a couple times, which oh, I never yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, no, who, which writer does? <laughs> We're always trying to do the different words. I didn't notice though. That's the thing. It's like your readers are never as picky as the writer is. Um, And also I didn't feel like the ending was rushed either. Like just from my perspective, but we may have some listeners who maybe are, once you've said that, I might go, yeah, maybe not me. I feel like it was fine. You know, maybe you could have tightened it up. I don't know (laughs) if that would have changed it fundamentally. Something about getting into her head and following along on the story was plant like it kept me going there was a hook there the thread was the story it's a frankenstein similarity (laughs) it's a story in a story right where and it was just too damn fun like the whole (laughs) stuff in the jury store i mean karen was on a roll and she's saying all this stuff to me and i'm like hurriedly writing it down and it was it was fun like you know the more ridiculous things she said the more fun it was it was like wow this woman's something okay yeah um, and you just get it out that's awesome um, yeah thank you yeah so now before i move on to my story because I, I will say just to tightly wrap it up well done again 
I'm okay. going to I'm going to say already. I know that this is the end of this episode and that this is a part 1 of the podcast <laughs> and part 2 which is going to come next week is a continuation of this conversation and it's going to start with my story. So goodbye to those of you leaving right now. And now, bye. bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you found any of this valuable, please consider subscribing, recommending this to a friend, or leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening. If you watch this on my Servant YouTube channel or Facebook page, please leave a comment and share. I love to hear from my listeners and learn from them. Learn more about me at www.servant.com. That's S-R-V-E-N-T.com. Thank you again for your time. Now go be creative and sane.